This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. We built the cities for us. The concrete, the metal, and the glass were formed into countless austere structures designed to give comfort to squishy, hairless bipeds. When we made the cities, we were largely unconcerned with the feathered, the spineless, or the photosynthetic. But to quote our greatest scientist, Dr. Ian Malcolm of Jurassic Park, life finds a way. But the life that found a way to thrive within our city limits isn't celebrated for its ingenuity or lauded for its fortitude. The plants and animals that have made it, the life that found a way, is reviled. Familiarity has bred contempt at worst, or indifference at best. We kick pigeons. We poison snails. We mow down even the most useful weeds. But in Nathaniel Johnson's new book, Unseen City, he implores us to slow down and notice the beauty and resilience of the life that thrives within our urban landscape. He uncovers weeds that are tastier than you've imagined, squirrels that are smarter than you suspected, and pigeons that exemplify their aristocratic origins. He writes about all the gross stuff they do too. They're no grosser than us humans, but let's just say that every time you admire the green iridescent shimmer of the neck feathers on a pigeon, you will also be reminded of a thing called pigeon milk, and it will haunt your nightmares. A few weeks ago, I interviewed Nathaniel Johnson in front of an audience at Nightlife, the adults-only nighttime weekly event at the California Academy of Sciences. I had such a good time there, and I enjoyed Unseen City so much that we thought we'd share it as a special episode. I started out by asking Nathaniel what a synanthrope was and why he decided to write a whole book about them. Synanthropes are the creatures that thrive together with humans. So syn is together in the Greek and anthro is human, synanthropes. And these are the, all the creatures that are living right alongside us. The weeds springing up through the cracks, the starlings that are growing generation after generation in your attic. And I've always been kind of a wannabe naturalist who's interested in these types of things. But for some reason, these particular creatures always seemed like they weren't worthy of real study. And so I, I kind of ignored them until I had a baby girl. And she didn't ignore them. She was incredibly interested in these creatures. And so I started looking at them too. And when I started looking at them in the way that she did through these fresh eyes, I started seeing things that I'd never seen before. And that was really cool because, you know, you can go out into the woods and find something new that you've never seen before. And it's like, that's amazing. But it's even more magical when it's been there right in front of you day after day, right underneath your nose. And then you are able to look at it in a new way and see something that's, that just pops out and is, is amazing. Do you remember the first thing that she pointed out that you felt like you had to find an answer for her? Yeah, there was this thing that would happen pretty much every day as we were going to her daycare. I'd have her in the front pack, and she would point at basically everything that we passed. And so she'd be like, what's that? And I'd say, that's a tree. And she'd say, that? That's still, that's actually the same tree, even. It's... <laughs> that and so I had this terrible choice between like saying tree 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 <laughs> over and over again or um, or listening to her scream for the entire time 
Um, and so I, I, tr I decided to complicate the game a little bit by making a new rule, which was that I could only say the same thing one time. So I could say tree, but then I would have to say branch, you know, twig, leaf, stamen. And by doing that, this one time, I, I saw these tiny little flowers on this tree that I'd never seen before. And we just got close to it, and there were these beautiful little yellow flowers. And so then I had to go find what the tree was and... Um, and it was, it was just this wonderful moment. And then, you know, we came back later and saw those same flowers, and we saw they were developing into um, seed pods. And she remembered, and she was like, whoa, that's cool. And so, so that was the first real moment where I was like, there's stuff out here that I could be noticing that I'm not. Right. And you give a kind of a toolkit for noticing things. And one of my favorites, so like on my show, 99% Invisible, we have a saying, it's always read the plaque. And it's not because all plaques are fantastic. Many of them are really boring and factually incorrect. But, but at least if you're the type of person that reads the plaque, you're a person who notices the story in places. And you have this corollary that I love that's sort of the equivalent in the, the natural wonders of the cityscape, always eat the weed. <laughs> and so, so how does that sort of worked into so how you cultivate awareness in the natural world? So if, if you always eat the weed, uh, <laughs> you, you walk through the world in a very different way. And I should say that, you know, that we're talking about edible weeds yeah, here. Don't, <laughs> don't eat every weed. But there's a surprising number of them that, that are edible. And the, all these things that grow in these gritty situations, a lot of them uh, happen to be uh, pretty tasty if you catch them in the right situation. We just interact with nature generally through our eyes. You know, we look at stuff. Sometimes maybe we'd like listen to birdsong or smell the, the roses or the skunk or whatever, but we rarely interact with nature by putting it in our mouths. And when you do that, all of the senses snap into focus because you've got the feel in the mouth, the, the scent goes up the back of your nose, there's a, a crunch, and the taste, of course. And you also start seeing things differently because as soon as the brain registers that that's food, this mishmash of weeds that you couldn't really distinguish before comes right into focus. And, and I'm terrible at remembering different species names, but if it's something that I can eat, um, for some reason there's this like evolutionary <laughs> thing that it's like, oh, that. I, I remember the nasturtiums and the, um, you know, the, the dandelions when they're just coming in and the mallow and that sort of thing. Wow. So let's talk about pigeons. I kind of view them as disgusting, lice-ridden lizards. You don't view them that way, obviously. And by the end of the chapter, I didn't feel that way. So why do we hate them? Because universally, people don't really like them. And what are we getting wrong about pigeons? I think that the, what happened with pigeons is that, I mean, they are legitimately revolting. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just put that on the table. Um, noted. But all the things that we find really loathsome about them are really caused by us, by humans, because we bred them to be massively productive, and then we put them in this situation where we fed them all kinds of food, and we created this massive amount of food waste that they could eat, and they reproduce like crazy, and so then they're overpopulated, and they're all squished together, and they get parasites and diseases. And, and a lot of the things that we 
find disgusting about them are a result of, of that. Those are our things. Those are our things. But, but they didn't start like that. These had noble origins, these pigeons. Right. So pigeons are really a bird of the aristocracy. They were first domesticated probably in the Middle East, and then they spread around Europe with the Romans and with Roman upper class, really. They were built into the, the architecture of, of Roman houses. One of the classic elements of the Tuscan villa is this belvedere, this top-like structure that you can go out and see the beautiful view. And that was a pigeon house, you know, this open-roofed structure at the top of the building. And now it's this common feature of a beautiful, stately, upper-class house. And then they came to the U.S. with the upper crust as well. Uh, Samuel Champlain, the first governor of Quebec, was the person to bring them to the New World, and they spread across the U.S. because governors and dignitaries would give them to each other, and you had to have, you know, a pigeon roost in your house or you know, nearby. And so they spread with the upper crust, but then they became really successful. And <laughs> as America became more and more successful and we started producing more and more food and started building these plazas with statues in the middle of them, pigeons started taking to those places and taking them over. And you can't really maintain your status as a symbol of the aristocracy if you're an incredibly common thing. <laughs> And so they, they fell from grace. And you can see this happening in the language, too. Um, one of the interesting things about pigeons is the, the words um, pigeon and dove, for a long time, they were just mixed together. There's no scientific distinction between those two things. You know, it's wow. all kind of the same family. Often, the common name of something will both be a pigeon and a dove. But at some point, everything good was a dove and everything bad was a pigeon. <laughs> and, and you can see it today. I mean, it, if you try and change it around, there's this huge cultural antipathy toward pigeons, right? So if you, if you think of, like, pigeon soap or uh, <laughs> pigeon chocolate bars, it just, it just doesn't work. Or you could use, you know, think about it in, like, the uses in, in the Bible, like... Um, the Holy Spirit descending from heaven in the form of a pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> and so they've, they've undergone this radical transformation, and I sort of feel for them. If you look at them closely, they're these beautiful birds, if they're not diseased and <laughs> rabid. We're kind of in this cold war, maybe even a hot war, with pigeons all the time. And it doesn't really work all that well. So what are the ways that we deal with pigeons? Right. In so there's, the pigeon control industry is a pretty massive industry. And you can do a lot of things. You can put spikes out to stop the pigeons. You can put netting that blocks them. They even have like miniature electric fences um, to keep pigeons away. And none of it works. I mean, it all works to a certain degree in that you, you can push pigeons off of one building, but they can just go to the next building, <laughs> right. and, and that's what they do. And as long as the food source is there, the pigeons will be there. Right. Um, okay, so let's, let's get on to the pigeon milk. Okay. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I read this, and it was really upsetting to me. <laughs> so I want you to upset all these people here in this room. <laughs> What is pigeon milk? So um, normally we think of mammals giving milk. You know? Yes. <laughs> That's exactly right. 
but it's it's a really useful uh, delivery device of of nutrients and birds have figured it out too, or at least pigeons have figured it out too. And it's, it's completely um, convergent evolution. It's not like this is something that has spread up the evolutionary tree. It's, it's very similar uh, in its structure, but it's completely independently derived. Right. And essentially what, what happens is the birds secrete some nutrients through the inside of their throats, and there's a little pouch that birds have inside their throats called the crop and it collects in the crop, and it's this sort of yellowish, cheesy... Um, yeah, not gross at all, you're right. <laughs> and then the, the squabs, the little birds, stick their heads down the parents' throats and, and thrust to, to get the pigeon milk out. Both the males and the females produce this. It's, oh. it's a beautiful wonder of nature. When you were researching pigeons, you noticed that a bunch of them have messed up legs. And there's a mystery to why so many pigeons have messed up legs. Yeah, so I don't know if you've seen this, but I started seeing this as soon as I started looking closely at pigeons, that they often would be missing a toe or they'd be missing their foot entirely, and it was just the stump. And it was like this huge percentage. Every time I would look, I would see, you know, there'd be like 10 pigeons out there, and one or two of them would have something wrong with their feet. And when I started looking for the answers about this, I found all of these ideas, and people were pretty sure that there were predators, like cats were attacking their feet. But it, why would they just attack the feet? <laughs> you know? Or they were getting staph infections. And it took me a really long time to figure this out. It was sort of throughout the entire course of the research, I was tracing down these different threads. And eventually, what I found, the, you know, the premier pigeon researcher said, oh yes, all of this is nonsense. What happens is that they pick up little bits of thread or hair, which is incredibly common in cities, and it gets tangled around their feet, and they don't have any way to get it off, and it just gets tangled tighter and tighter, and it causes these lesions. And normally birds don't get this because most birds hop, and pigeons kind of shuffle. And so they're really well adapted to cities in many ways, except for this one terrible, wow. grotesque flaw. Some reason their beaks just, they're not capable of taking it They're not it capable of untangling it. Wow. Well, that's sad. Okay, I feel bad for pigeons now. <laughs> in the book, most of the flora and fauna are species that thrive in the concrete landscape, but humans didn't purposely make it easy for them to survive. That's not the case for the ginkgo biloba, which is a tree that uh, probably wouldn't exist anymore if it weren't for people planting them in cities. So why are ginkgos unsuitable for nature, and why do they do so well in cities? The golden age of ginkgos was the Cretaceous, when, when ginkgos ruled the world, as we all know. That's how we think of that era. Um, they just shared it with dinosaurs. They didn't care. <laughs> really, they were in charge. <laughs> At that time, ginkgos had some evolutionary partner. They had some kind of creature that would help them distribute their seeds. And today we have no idea what this is. It's this mystery that people are still trying to figure out. And it's a double mystery because their seeds smell like, like microwaved death. It's just <laughs> terrible. There's male and female ginkgos, and the, the females produce the seeds. And if you're around them around September, November, you'll notice. You'd stop. That's one thing you can 
open your eyes to, you can stop and find the seeds and notice just how terrible they smell. But there was something that must have liked this smell and must have eaten it and carried it to different places. And at some point, the seed distributor probably died out, and it simply meant that the ginkgos couldn't outrun the glaciers as the climate changed. And so you see them all across the world. They have these really tough, leathery leaves, so they make great fossils, and people find them all over the place. And then they retreat, and they retreat, and they retreat until they're just a couple valleys in China where they're left. And their entire family gets wiped out, too. They're the only remaining species of this whole division of plant life that remains. And then people come along, and people fall in love with ginkgos. And it turns out the ginkgos kind of love us, too. They can thrive in polluted air. They do well in concrete. They do well in partial light, which is perfect for cities. They're famously good at taking abuse, you know, being backed into by a delivery truck or, <laughs> or close to an atom bomb. There was one just a kilometer away from the uh, Hiroshima bomb site that survived and regrew. It's this kind of amazing story where they just barely hung on for millions and millions of years, and then they happened to find themselves in this crazy point in the Earth's history where they could thrive in human cities. Because the, um, the fruits, the, the seeds are so stinky, we tend to plant only the male of the species, right? That's right. People try to just plant the males, and sometimes they get it wrong. <laughs> and it's hard, you know, it's like 30 years before they become sexually mature, so then it's like, oops, you know, <laughs> I guess that was a female. But even the males have their downsides because then, you know, they produce tons and tons, tons of, of pollen. pollen. Yeah. So um, one way or the other. So you discovered that ginkgo seeds were edible at a certain point once you get rid of that really stinky flesh that's around them. And I just have this quote that I want to read from your book, which I really liked a lot. It says, Ginkgo toxin is similar in structure to vitamin B6, and eating too much of it interferes with our ability to synthesize the vitamin. That can provoke a biochemical cascade that, especially in children, may lead to seizures and even death. This sounds alarming, but it wasn't enough to deter me. What does deter you from eating things? And in general, are we a little too paranoid about poisonous nature? Yeah, I think we're a little too paranoid about poisonous nature and just poisons in general. For the previous book that I did, I, I ended up researching a whole bunch about our relationship with plants. And when you look at that relationship, that coevolutionary exchange between animals and plants, it's a history of chemical warfare. You know, <laughs> plants produce crazier and crazier chemicals to try and protect themselves from animals. And you would think that they would just win, right? Because they have these amazing laboratories where they can just synthesize stuff that would make, you know, people at the NSA just salivate, and, you know, <laughs> this crazy stuff. But they don't because animals are really, really tough. And basically, animals are like, hmm, pretty good poison there, plant. <laughs> Guess I'll eat a little bit less of you. <laughs> and so we've evolved the ability to deal with this. And you really, if you spend enough time with this history, you really take in the, the uh, lesson that the dose makes the poison. And with ginkgo seeds especially, yes, there is this possibility of poisoning, but also, there is this history of millions of people eating this for thousands of years, so I felt pretty 
okay with it. Safe with it. How did they end up tasting? So first of all, I tried to do it myself, and I was a little bit paranoid about the poison, and so I like cooked it and cooked it and cooked it, and then I cracked open the ginkgo nut, and it was like this shriveled little brown thing, and I was like, I wonder if that's how it's supposed to look. <laughs> it's like it's really hard and kind of caramel tasting. And then I went to someone who's a Chinese cooking enthusiast and knows how to prepare this correctly, and she made it. And it was it was a little bit of a letdown because it was so mild. It's just this. Uh, it's kind of a tacky, very mild, slightly bitter, but not especially flavorful nut. It's kind of like overcooked gnocchi. It's just a little bit. <laughs> And it's really valued more for its texture in Chinese cuisine than for its taste. Right. And it's in supposed medical properties as well. Yeah. What's the deal with medical properties? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the medical properties that we generally talk about have to do with compounds in the leaves, and ginkgo biloba has been shown to help facilitate blood flow, and so. And that can help with things like facilitating blood flow in the brain. So maybe yes, there might be some way in which it makes you smarter, but it's kind of a stretch. And it does facilitate the blood flow by kind of thinning the blood too. So it, it can have some dangerous complications with if you're already on blood thinners or such. So I wanted to hit on one more species before we wrap it up,、um, but there's a bunch of them in the book, and you should definitely check it out. I want to talk about crows a little bit. Crows. Are the species in the book that seem to most knowingly take advantage of human cityscapes? I mean, they, they're shockingly bright. Things that are probably not good for us as humans, like streetlights. People think that upsets our circadian rhythms. Like crows are all about streetlights. So, so tell us a little bit about that and how they've particularly worked their way into our lives. There's this mystery because there's this this boom in crows, and it doesn't seem like there's really a boom in crows, but Actually, just a concentration of crows in cities, and so then the question is, why are crows coming into cities? And one explanation for that is streetlights, because if you're a crow, the scariest thing in the world is a great horned owl, because they just fly around in the dark, and they're huge, and they're silent, and they just swoop down and totally eat you. <laughs> <laughs> And if you have streetlights, you can see them coming, and so that may be why crows are moving into cities. Wow, we're protecting them. We're protecting our, them. They're awful lights on all the time. <laughs> Fundamentally, when I was reading this, I was like, it's really all about story. So, like, we do stories about sort of mundane and ugly things all the time, and I can be seduced. Like the ugliest building, if it has a good story, I'm like all about it. And we we did a story about those inflatable tube men, you know. <laughs> Those are dumb as hell, but you have this guy talking about him, and he's from Trinidad, and he goes, "They're dancing up a storm like that." And it's like the greatest thing ever. And now I love those things, and that's really what this is about. You like you find the story of these things, and all of a sudden, this nature, which is kind of set up to be a nuisance, or like in our heads, like a nuisance,、yeah. is a thing you can fall in love with. Every time I pass one of those tube men, now I think <laughs> of that story. <laughs> And it makes my life a little bit richer because I hear that guy's voice and I think of that whole story. And the same is true with all of these creatures that I've started to get to know, because on my way to work, I, you know, if I stop at the bus stop in the morning, instead of just being kind of annoyed, 
in the back of my head that there's a crow calling, I'll, I'll like look up and see if it's having a squabble with a squirrel and like wonder what that's about. Or I'll stop to look closely at the flowers that are coming out in the tree and be like, oh, that's telling me something about that particular tree. All of these things are telling stories to us. And I just would like to be able to read those stories and fully follow the narrative back. You know, these creatures are passing out newspapers the way that guys do in the city at the top of the subway. And I'd like to really be able to read those newspapers and have that rich understanding of my world as I walk through it. So if, if people here, they leave here, they want to go out and do what you did, do you have like an like a assignment for them to sort of like begin to notice something? Yeah, so, the, so one thing... There's a bunch of things that you could do, but one thing that's right in front of you, I mean, there's pigeons everywhere. We've talked a lot about pigeons. Can anybody tell me what color a pigeon's eyes are? Reddish, green, blue. I heard, I, heard some, I heard a correct answer, but why don't we just leave it and take a close look <laughs> <laughs> next time you see them. It's really crazy. So like, when you do it, find it, put it on Twitter, tag it with Unseen City, and we'll, we'll watch for it. So if you're like me and you read in bed next to your spouse and you like to go, hey, you know what about uh, snails? Uh, they have two antennas so that they can uh, find calcium. This is the book for you, my friends. <laughs> like every five minutes, you're going to be saying something like that. Nathaniel, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you, I appreciate it. Give me a welcome. Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Delaney Hall, Kurt Colstead, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, Sharif Youssef, and me, Roman Mars. Thanks to Nightlife at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. You can explore music, creatures, and cocktails with other curious-minded adults every Thursday night at the museum. It is a cool day. You should definitely go. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. You have one final week to buy tickets to see Radiotopia live in LA. Only a handful of seats are left, so get yours now. You're going to feel so bad if you miss it. Radiotopia.fm slash ace. Invisible is supported by Betterment, the largest independent robo-advisor with more than 150,000 customers and over $4 billion under management. Betterment makes it easier, more straightforward, and less expensive to invest. Betterment developed a beautiful user interface and smart cutting-edge software to bring you sophisticated investing and financial advice, all at a lower cost. 99% Invisible listeners can get up to six months free and more. Information at betterment.com slash 99. Betterment. Investing made better. 99% Invisible is supported by Hightail, an online creative collaboration service designed to free the world's creativity. You know those ineffective email threads where you spend more time describing which part of the photograph or video or design that you're discussing instead of focusing on the actual feedback? Well, Hightail solves this problem by letting you add comments to the image itself so that you can highlight exactly what you mean. And if you're working on video or audio files, all the comments are timestamped to the specific second. Add to that a unique approach to version control, one-click approvals, and simple task management, and you can take creative projects from concept to completion in one place with Hightail. 99PI listeners can try Hightail for free by signing up at Hightail.com. Hightail, 
keep your ideas moving. And finally, this show and Radiotopia from PRX only exists because of the generosity of our listeners, the Knight Foundation of Miami, Florida, and MailChimp. This week on the 99PI MailChimp newsletter, the bizarre designs of rockets during the pro-nuke mania of the atomic age and all the things we thought we'd accomplish by exploding nuclear bombs to clear away land. The 1950s were a crazy time. Get a link to that story on the 99PI newsletter, which you can subscribe to at 99pi.org. But if you want to send better email of your own, go to MailChimp.com. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. You can follow us all on Twitter and Instagram. But the best way to explore the 99% invisible activity that shapes the design of our world is to become friends with our website. It's 99pi.org. Radiotopia.